the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, we're talking about uh, injustices in relationship potentially to the way federal retirement dollars are invested in um, countries like China and Russia. Uh, There are some other injustices taking place. And we've, of course, watched for a long time uh, the arena of public and private education, including homeschooling, states like California that have, quite frankly, been very hostile toward uh, Christian schools and homeschooling. And and it seems as if this is a growing trend that uh, on an increasing basis, various states try to come up with reasons why, even though homeschooling, private schooling, Christian schooling preceded public education by, by decades, centuries, and that, in fact, the public education system was started by Christians um, way back many years ago when Fido was a pup. And uh, yet, in spite of that, there seems to be a, sort of this uh, battle enjoined because none of the educational uh, content, but rather of the values that go hand in hand with educating a child or brainwashing a child, as the case may be. Brad Dacus, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, constitutional lawyer, he joins us now by phone. As you've branched out, I understand that uh, part of the embattled joined now, Brad, is all the way clear across the country in New York. Tell us, what are the folks in the Big Apple up to? Oh, I tell you something, Craig, this is is really disturbing. Uh, In New York is a, a Orthodox... Uh, Jewish school. Uh, now, this is a, a Yasidic. It's it's very uh, long time established. These schools and the traditions of these of these schools are older than the United States of America. And uh, these you know parents have their kids in these schools. Uh, they they learn Hebrew, uh, of course English. They learn you know how to uh, you know math, reading, writing, arithmetic, etc. However, they don't have some of the, the this outrageous. A liberal, a socially liberal indoctrination that the, the state of New York is trying to push on not just public schools, but now private schools, private religious schools like theirs. And the state of New York is uh, threatening to shut them down. We at Pacific Justice Institute have stepped in and we're representing them uh, because if they are successful, then in, in shutting them down, uh, then it's, the door is going to be wide open for uh, similar schools, Christian schools. Uh, to be uh, shut down as well under the dictates of a a liberal social uh, extreme agenda uh, on our children in private religious schools. Now, these schools, as you point out, that provide basically a a, a Torah-based or Torah-centric instruction have been around forever 
And uh, certainly, as you aptly point out, even predating the existence of the United States. So if this heretofore has not been an issue and they've somehow uh, found the children's education coming up uh, you know, egregiously deficient, so much so that uh, the state feels as if it needs to get involved for the protection and benefit of the children. If this has not heretofore been the case, then what all of a sudden is the trigger that says to New York that they need to go in and meddle with the education? provided by the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews in New York. Yeah, I tell you, Craig, I think this is indicative of a very dangerous mindset that uh, many in our country have today, which is that uh, there's only one viewpoint, only one perspective, and and uh, everyone must comply with that viewpoint and perspective uh, in a, a humanistic, um, radical, leftist, uh, philosophy contrary to a a biblical or or judeo-christian worldview philosophy and if they don't um, then they're going to be shut down they're going to be silenced and it's that mindset i think that is what is what is compelling uh... legislators in the state of new york and particularly and and um, to to push and and uh, try to uh... invade the line and and cross over into uh, private religious uh... institutions and in in so far as where this stands now, um, has it gone to the Department of Education in New York? Are they open to any reasonable discussion, or is there a sense uh, in your mind that this is going to be headed to the courts? Yeah, I, I um, you know, right now we're we're defending it on the administrative level. Uh, that said, uh, it doesn't look pretty. It looks like we're going to have to take this to court um, and uh, defend it potentially all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Wow, they're digging their heels in, aren't they? Oh, yes, they, they are. It's, um, you know, this is, they're, they're very dogmatic. Uh, this is New York we're talking about. And, um, but, you know, make no mistake, um, we were, you know, they called out to uh, Pacific Justice Institute for representation. Uh, we have pledged to represent them uh, and pick up all the costs all the way as far as long as we need to. Uh, because the stakes really are high. If, this, if New York gets away with this, uh, then uh, other, without question, other Christian schools um, will be threatened, and then other states that have that that kind of a mindset governing their legislature uh, and, and cities will uh, try to do the same. Well, it becomes so. precedent setting in that sense. But I, I have to wonder. I mean, is is New York? really the place that um, those with this extremist liberal agenda wish to engage in the battleground, uh, particularly given the influence and, and long history of um, conservative and minority religious groups, uh, most particularly uh, the presence of, presence of uh, Hasidic Jews there? I mean, is that really the place where they want to decide to pick a fight? Yeah, I, I think they're I, I think that's a very good observation. I think this is a, a bad fight for them to have. Um, you know, anti-Semitism is already a, a very sensitive issue uh, in this country. Uh, we see it happening, uh, increasing in America as well as uh, internationally. I mean, it's like going to Boston and picking a fight with Roman Catholics. It's like, really? Is that the place where you decide to do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. New, New York is, is probably uh, not the, the smartest place to do that. But, uh, you know, wherever they wherever the fight, you know, shots are fired, we'll be happy to... Uh, to respond accordingly, wherever that may be, and right now it's it's in New York, and um, uh, you know this this ultra orthodox Hasidic way of life uh, and culture is something that 
um, that needs to be protected. You know, there was another case in 1972 where the Amish had uh, beliefs about uh, schooling and, and what that was, that was necessary, and the court said, hey, they're doing a fine job. The kids in these schools have no difficulty uh, providing for themselves and, and uh, the, the life that they have. Uh, the same is true for this school and for other religious schools, and that's why it's, um, it's so important that they be protected, not to have to compromise their faith, their traditions, and uh, their, their morals. The battle once again enjoined, and uh, pleased to know that Pacific Justice Institute is on the, the front lines, even in a bicoastal fashion now. And um, we appreciate, Brad, you taking the time to uh, uh, let our listeners here in California be aware of what's going on, because, hey, you know, there's there's the old adage, as California goes, so goes the nation. Well, guess what? New York has some influence, too. And um, the, the notion that they could get away with something like this um, could embolden um, enemies of, of faith across the country in other states and saying, well, look, you know, uh, they, they've they done this in New York and the courts have blah, blah, blah. The courts have upheld it. And so, uh, therefore, for the benefit and protection of the educational um, um, goals of the state, we need to do this, too. And uh, this could this could be an unraveling um, in, in many vulnerable places across the country. So we appreciate uh, not only the willingness to take on this battle, but also to keep us apprised of what's going on. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. You can follow this story and others online at pji.org, pacificjustice.org. 6.15, we swing into uh, traffic mode here. Get you update here on the Tuesday ride home from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, the courts on an ever-increasing basis are becoming a a battleground where people of faith and values are having to uh, duke it out. Uh, Certainly that is true here in the San Francisco Bay Area as um, the fifth week of the massive Planned Parenthood federal lawsuit against the Center for Medical Progress continues. And uh, we've got an update for you now on uh, what's taking place. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And uh, Brian, as always, we appreciate you taking time to uh, to keep us apprised of um, the front lines of the pro-life movement. And this is, this is really a critical one because some of the claims that are being made here by Planned Parenthood go, go, go so far and abone beyond the pale that clearly I see them trying to use this as a means to sort of create a, a wedge topic here that eventually might be um, the basis upon which they pass even more legislation that would cripple pro-lifers at many venues, many ways. Well, that's right, Craig. As you know, their goal is to not want people to think about the humanity of the child. And so the emphasis is on zygotes. The emphasis is on, oh, when does life begin? When is, you know, when is this relevant? But that's not when abortions are happening. And these abortions are killing individual, unique human beings. And the topic in this very important case, and really this is right now a time for prayer in the San Francisco area, because starting today and then tomorrow are the final days. The jury will then be charged at the end of the day tomorrow to come back with a decision. An 11-member jury, and they have to be unanimous. So prayer is going to be very important. But, as you know, um, what happened with Center for Medical Progress, a group of very brave individuals, Sandra Merritt, David Delayden, Adrian Lopez, Troy Newman, and Albin Romberg, 
um, really carefully did an expose of the fact that Planned Parenthood sells these babies for body parts and their hearts and lungs and individual organs, and they make money from it. And this is an extraordinary admission, and that has been admitted in court. Now, if people want to, by the way, you're in the Bay Area tomorrow at the federal building. The courtroom is open to the public, and it is the Philip Burton Federal Building at 450 Golden Gate. It's very close to the Civic Center. Uh, you have to behave yourself, but you can go and witness history happening. The judge is Judge Oreck. He is an Obama appointee, but it's going to be in the hands of the jury. And it's critically important to realize why Planned Parenthood wants this hushed up. As you know, the major media hasn't really been covering this case. No, not at all. And, and you know, what's, what's troubling about this from the very get-go is that from the time of the revelations of what Planned Parenthood was engaged in back in 2014, 2015, there, there was a bit of an outcry for about 30 seconds, and then we all kind of went back to business as usual. There was never a holding of Planned Parenthood accountable for what they've engaged in. And, and by the way, organ harvesting is is a crime, and and yet none of the perpetrators were ever called to accountability, and all of a sudden it became the, the, the outrage that this isn't about the crime that was committed, it's about these people snuck into our meetings, these people surreptitiously recorded us, it's a violation of privacy. I mean, they have come up with every excuse in the book to try to deflect attention from the real crime at hand here, and I, I, I from the very get-go, find it absolutely ludicrous that David Nelden is even sitting in front of a judge and jury and, and having to defend himself when it really ought to be Planned Parenthood on trial. Yes, in some ways it is, and that's what our advantage is. We have to talk about it, though, because, again, the, the media's power is in as much what they refuse to cover, and... We have to recognize that. We have to get the word out. And we have to examine the fact that this is killing a human being. Again, the concerted effort culturally is to minimize the humanity of the human baby. And in reality, abortion, by the time you have an abortion, the question of when life begins is not even relevant. I had a reporter ask me, we're talking about legislation, they said, well, you know, you're bringing up the whole issue, when does life begin? I said, well, wait a second. That isn't the issue at all. If that's the case, then uh, if we don't know when life began, well, you're a human being. You're a human being and you're alive. Does that mean if, if we don't know when life began, I, I can kill you? No, we do know you're alive. We do know these babies are alive. We know that the body parts from a living child who was just killed are then sold. And the fact is, this is objectively a human being in every way, shape, and form, dependent on their mother, dependent on the care of society. And in 73, that was all changed. That's what you don't want to look at. It isn't a question of when does life begin. There aren't abortions happening then. The abortions are happening much later. They don't want to look about it. Look at it. They want to think about it. So the light of day, and we have a, a project in California Pro-Life Council, is urging people to get the word out that these are kids, kids that you could hold in your arms, kids that are big enough to survive outside the womb, are being killed. 
for their body parts. And if you don't talk about it, the pro-life movement doesn't talk about it. Ain't nobody else going to talk about it. So this particular trial tomorrow, again, tomorrow it wraps up. Tomorrow the deliberation of the jury will depend really on their conscience and really understanding what's at stake. And it's of huge, huge significance for the larger message. And we need to remember that. And um, it's, uh, it's very important that regardless of what happens in this decision, we must continue. But we must continue to do what this case is about. And that is underscore that these are unique human beings, as unique as you and I. And they've been killed and the body parts sold individually. And as you said, that's a crime. So we have to bring that message of the dignity of the human person and the dignity of each and every life. And that's what's at stake in that courtroom. And the telling of truth is is also a little bit at stake here as well, because there's been much information that has been put forward by Planned Parenthood and some of the others that have been providing, quote-unquote, expert testimony of the National Abortion Rights Foundation, organizations of that sort that have been called forward to talk about all terrible incidences of violence and that how the reporting that was done by the Center for Medical Progress and and David Daladin, rather than than uh, pulling back the curtain and revealing um, horrific crimes, crimes against humanity, you could even argue. Instead, this is all about raising the specter of potential violence against abortion providers, and not, not an ounce of which, in many cases, has any modicum of truth to it. I mean, they, for example, at one point in the testimony, I understand that they, they argued that uh, some of the violence that they say is perpetrated on abortion providers, um, when, they, when they calculate this or report these things, they include things like trespass, <coughs> disruptions, uh, Hate mail, email, internet harassment, bomb threats, everything. So you know, if if you if you email them a note and say what you're doing, I think is 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 is, is terrible towards uh, towards children. That's considered to be a hate crime. I mean, it's it's ridiculous the way in which they have really not only put these these people trying to get the truth out on trial, but pr- truth itself apparently on trial. That's right, and I think it's important just on that. We strongly encourage, if you do care, and I think many listeners do care, don't be threatening. If, uh, that does not represent us. And I think of Lincoln's words. You know, Lincoln didn't start the, the Civil War, and it was even after the war that it was actually the passage through the legal process. Goals, the goal of both the Right to Life movement and the anti-slavery movement was to bring a legal end and this is what Lincoln said, we will use ballots and not bullets to end this. And that's what we're going to do with Roe v. Wade. Many states, when Roe is overturned, about 36 states, they're going to protect babies like they did before Roe. We're going to have to use the ballot here in California. So I want to urge people, have resolve to watch who it is you're voting for. Who you're, and that's on the local level. Obviously, there's a lot of attention nationally. But it's really who you elect locally that has great impact. And there are pro-life folks that run, even in San Francisco. So if you know who they are, get informed. Be involved in the civic process so that you're having an impact. Be the salt in your community. Bring salt and light. And, you know, don't threaten. And be, be gracious as you expose these great evils. You know, we're alight. And so it's very important. And, and you're right. They want to imply that... Oh, you're mean-spirited. Oh, you're terrible. 
and it's it's absurd. It's the only defense they have is to accuse you, when in fact the real evil here is that these are human babies that are wanted. They're a waiting list years long of couples that will adopt that child, even children with disabilities. So Planned Parenthood's motto is every child a wanted child. But that's true. Every child is wanted. That young mother may feel at that moment some emotional pressure, and the goal of Planned Parenthood is to bring more emotional pressure. But there are people who want that baby and will help that young mother. The fact is, every life is valuable. We're lucky to be alive, each of us. And so the right to life is so important. It's a foundational element for keeping us a just society. And so this trial tomorrow, huge significance. Do be in prayer for the jurors. And again, if you want to go down, you can go to the courtroom and just behave yourself. But you can see, you can see what's happening. Again, a very important decision to be initiated tomorrow by these jurors. And certainly a lot uh, a lot at stake here, so uh, be in prayer for the wisdom of the jurors as well once the case gets handed over to them for a decision. We'll keep you updated here on Lifeline. Meanwhile, our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, for that update. 631, let's get you updated on traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money and while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, I, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that it really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our, our goal, that's what we are doing this for, but we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health, and we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. 
Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two. You know, that is, that is how I was trained, honestly. And um, I, I, I'm ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where I, um, I just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time, wasting my time, um, because I believed the surgeon's motto, you know, heal with steel, or, you know, when in doubt, cut it out. And some of those uh, <laughs> uh, things uh, we use to just, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's not all... Uh, for the patient, we we have our own agendas that that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency to maybe, uh, and I know the, the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe? Within some within the medical community, that you know, why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure? I'm the doctor. I'm in charge. I'm handling this. Almost sounding as if at a level, maybe while not uh, openly recognized, almost a subconscious sense of, well, I'm not going to bring God into this equation because in my operating room, I am God. You know, that is that is. Um I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted to I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one, because you, as you detail inside the pages of Grey Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray, and what that would mean, and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself, you go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what happened when, when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair, and... Um my dentist, I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine. And, you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could uh, 
but I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is, this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> <laughs> so I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how sure, they Sure, yeah. <laughs> they not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, you know, God guide my hands, uh, you know, bless David, something like that. And then... I felt this peace come over me. It was it was just an unusual. I mean, the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say now. Come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things, yeah. but instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he, he recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so when I went to, to I, I basically said, well, wow, that, you know, that's as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. Well, you know, why, why am I not at least asking them, not pushing it on them? But I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs. My heart was pounding. Uh, and, of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office where it was just, just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point. And um, so I decided to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. <laughs> there's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this, this I've decided, has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me, actually, offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course, you're senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs> I, I do, right. But I was, I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time. And so I'm trying to outlast her and I'm waiting and finally I, you know, say, okay, I'll have to pray another day. And I, I back up to the nurse's station uh, I didn't leave. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes. And so, you know how we do. We pretend that I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking you know, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turned right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside. And before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, Fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but 
neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just ask for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. And I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out, and I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before. Because I, the, the patients look to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life I had said, look, I'm not God, I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God, but I would be willing to talk to him with you, if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care, and that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation, Dr. David Levy with us tonight. A look at gray matter. Neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. As you develop the, the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God? Well, Craig, I think that, uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I've certainly uh, been guilty of that for many years, and so there's something about, um, as, as we give glory to God, there, it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I, you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a problem in his in the brain he had a, a number of other problems he was only 40 years old and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back and so I I began to ask him about um, his emotional health and I asked him something for the first time I'd never asked a patient this before I said uh, Ron is there someone that you can't forgive He's an enormous man. He's this uh, marine, an enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools, and so I'm starting to roll away from him. 
rolling back to the wall, and finally he said, my mother. And I said, excuse me, I thought, you know, maybe his drill sergeant or his father, and he said, no, my mother. And I said, well, well Ron, what, what happened? And he said, well, my dad left when I was young, but my, uh, my mom, you know, shacked up with a number of different guys, and they would drink, and they would... Uh, they would get in fights with her, and I got between uh, one of these men and my mother, and I got knocked down the stairs. And I, I stood up, and I said, come on, Mom, let's get out of here. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. And I've hated her. He said, I've hated her since that time. And I've, um, and 30, that was 30 years ago. And so I said, wow, Ron, that's, that's what I'm looking for. But I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. I said, uh, you know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that? So he, he paused for a few moments and then said, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've hung on to this long enough. And so, you know, I led him through a, a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs. And, and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who, who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when, when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man, you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery, and the surgery went well. But even six months later, he was still joyful because I had taken the time. Now, the interesting thing, when he, when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit, he said, uh, he said, I feel like calling my mother. Mm. And he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together. And, and, and I think as physicians, or even as friends, um, you know, we can, we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their, you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's, let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health. And so I, I really emphasize in the book the, uh, the health benefits of forgiveness. Certainly, it, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life, too. Mm. It, it has, yes. I, I've, I've certainly, um, obviously, have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know, I have to forgive. I have to... Um, you know, I actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's it's a it's just a beautiful time of my day. Um, and so yeah, my my life has changed, and I think I think for the better. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean, it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and in impacting the world around us and what easier, better place to start 
than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.